Hey y'all, it's Marty Duncan. I want to tell you about a podcast that's all about cookbooks. Salt and Spine brings cookbooks to life, celebrating new releases and the classics that have inspired home cooks for generations. Host Brian Hogan-Stewart talks with some of your favorite cookbook authors like Allison Roman, Nigella Lawson, Carla Hall, Julia Tertian, and Jacques Pepin. Plus, you'll hear from cookbook critics and experts as they head into the kitchen to whip up recipes you can make at home. This week, we're presenting Brian's interview with Molly Stevens. She's the author of All About Dinner. I hope you'll enjoy it. From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. The most important thing is inspiration and encouragement because so I've heard so many people say they don't know how to cook or they're not good cooks. And in many cases, they do know how to cook and they are good cooks, but there's this fear around cooking. There's this, this trepidation. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. Remember, it's never a better time than now to support independent booksellers. You can find a list of our friends like Omnivore Books, who are happy to ship cookbooks to you, on our Instagram Stories page. Now, you just heard from today's guest, Molly Stevens. A renowned cooking teacher, Molly is the author of several cookbooks, including her most recent, All About Dinner. Her two previous books, All About Braising and All About Roasting, both earned the James Beard Award for Best Single Subject Cookbook. And with each of her books, Molly brings her role as a teacher right onto the page. The New York Times has called her a, quote, beautifully clear writer who likes to teach. And she's been named Cooking Teacher of the Year by both Bon Appetit Magazine and the International Association of Culinary Professionals. A native New Yorker who spent time in France before settling in Vermont, Molly's latest book, All About Dinner, is aimed at helping you, quote, invigorate your everyday menus and build your kitchen know-how. It includes more than 150 recipes, ranging from chipotle pork tacos to Parmesan risotto to a triple ginger apple crisp. In today's show, we're talking with Molly about how she still considers herself primarily a home cook, about what led her to cookbook writing to begin with, and how she approaches recipe development as a culinary teacher. Plus, as always, we're playing a salt and spine game with Molly at the end of our show, and we have two featured recipes from All About Dinner for you to make at home. A white bean gratin with tomatoes and sausage, it's a perfect pantry meal, and a chard and onion tart with two cheeses. Also in today's show, we're joined by food writer Charlotte Druckmann to talk cookbook covers, specifically why a cookbook's cover might look different in the United States as compared to the UK or elsewhere. And cookbook critic Paula Forbes joins us to share some highlights from March's new cookbook releases. All of that this week on Salt and Spine. So let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Molly Stevens joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Molly. How are you? I'm fine, Brian. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thanks for having me. We are thrilled to have you. And we're here to talk about your latest cookbook, All About Dinner, Simple Meals, Expert Advice. Uh, But we always like to start with our guests by going back a little bit and talking about sort of how you got into food and cookbook writing. Let's maybe start right at the beginning. You grew up in Buffalo, New York. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And you were part of a large family? Yeah. There were were four kids, but lots of cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents and a very big extended family. Sure. And food was a big part of your childhood. Yeah, we didn't, we, we gathered for any holiday, any occasion, any celebration. And thinking back, we, we didn't go out to dinner. We didn't, we weren't in a restaurant family because when you have a lot of people, 
don't go out to dinner. Right. And so the two times we went out twice a year, we went out for Mother's Day and we went out for my mother's birthday. Okay. Those were the two, but the rest sure. of the time it was just dinner at home. Every night was dinner around the table. Every family occasion was gathering with the cousins. And right. so it was really all about being around the table. Right. So that was pretty clear to you early on. And you took an interest in it at a young age in food. Yeah, I did. I, um, we cooked, my mom was super busy outside the house. And so there was often my sister, you know, it was a classic gender role situation, uh-huh. but my sister and I were often tasked with finishing the dinner, making the dinner, whatever. Um, and I, I was, I was thinking about this recently. I, I started cooking early. You know, I wanted a job in high school because I wanted money to buy sure. clothes and do things. And, sure. um, I tried retail. I was terrible at it. Yeah. And I found a job cooking and I just, I loved it. I just felt so at home. This is when you were in high school? Yeah. yeah. And then I think you started your own catering company. Is I, that right? Well, that was even, that was even before I started. It was, oh, before. It, okay. Well, it, yeah, it was, um, basically friends of my parents who would hire me and, you know, a friend if I needed it and we would come and sure. serve and clean and, but yeah, we had a little company. Yeah. Yeah. It was awesome. So you were sort of getting a taste of, of working in food pretty early on, but it was really family that played a big role, um, for you too. I mean, you dedicate this book to the memory of your mother. Who, who you say taught you that making dinner can be the ultimate expression of love. And this book sort of opens up too with these beautiful photos. And I think these are our family recipes. Yes. yes. That's I, my inference. Is that right? Yes, those are there. Um, it's a combination. Um, I have notebooks that were my mother's and my grandmother's and some of my aunt's as well. And uh, most of the handwriting on that page is my mother's. Okay. And, um, but there's some of my sisters and my grandmother. It's funny. There's a one um, from my grandmother, the one that's kind of in the, in the spine there with the very little writing uh-huh. um, and it's a molasses cookie from a Vermont cookbook which is just sort of this funny connection um, and I, I just I love I love thinking about those recipes and those books of theirs yeah and you have a lot of these family recipes today I do I don't yes I do I do and I, I keep them I don't necessarily use them as sure. much because it was a whole different time and I mean if you look at like there's a creamy apple dip right I'm there. seeing it's that here like, yes <laughs> it's kind of funny <laughs> yeah I love that creamy apple dip some baked beans which obviously we still enjoy today yeah, but I, yeah. I don't know if I've ever had a creamy apple dip yeah I don't even know what what's <laughs> quite in that and I'm not sure we want to recreate it that, looks like but... a mix of peanut butter bacon sour cream horseradish there you go and it's, exactly. I'm, I'm intrigued <laughs> <laughs> it was the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So so you're clearly interested in food sort of early on. You're you're starting to work in food when you're in high school and then you go off to college. I think you go to Middlebury, is that right? I did, yes. Uh, to study English. Mm-hmm. So at that point, were you sort of still thinking that food might be a career for you or, or was that sort of not in your mind? No, it wasn't in my mind because I didn't think it was a viable career. Okay. It was partly the time and partly where I my background and it just, I, I was getting a message that working in food was not something that a well-educated young woman should do. It just sure. wasn't the only, I didn't know any cooks. I didn't know, um, I mean, Julia was on TV, but we, it, we weren't really keyed into like fine French cooking. I didn't know fine dining. Right. So I, I really thought I needed to find a path that, yeah. aside from cooking. I was, and I thought, well, I liked to write and read, (laughs) so I would get a degree in English. It was kind of the classic, right? you know, I'm good at school, so get an English degree. Right. And so you you graduate with an English degree, and and I think then you moved to Boston, is that right? So, well, yes. 
I moved to Boston, but I, and I, I remember I packed a suitcase uh-huh. and my grandmother bought me a, a suit. Okay. And it had a skirt and it had trousers, you know, it was a uh-huh. whole interchangeable, the whole the whole yep. co- so I could go get a real job. <laughs> sure. Um, air quotes there. And, uh, <laughs> I got to Boston and I ended up working in restaurants because uh-huh. I didn't, I just, it's what I like to do. It's what I knew how to do. It's a job I could figure out how to get. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So I, I, I stayed in, in, in restaurants and then still feeling like that I needed to find my direction. Um, I applied to graduate school for another degree in English literature because at least that felt like education ha- was valued um, in my, you know, my family. And so sure. I was like, well, if I was going to school, I was doing something worthwhile. Yeah. So you're still sort of feeling like you have to find a career outside of food, even though you're taking restaurant jobs to pay the bills and because it's what you know to do, how to do. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. And the, and the restaurant jobs were not like, like I worked at a magic pan in Faneuil Hall. Right. You know, it was, it, <laughs> right. it was pretty, you know, it was not high end. Let's say that. Yeah. And then I think you have this moment. Tell me if this is, is wrong, but I think you have this moment where you, um, taste some bread, some artisan baked bread. Oh. Is that right? That sort of draws you to think about maybe going to France. Yeah, exactly. So I, um, I left Boston and ended up back in Vermont, uh, living with some friends and still working in restaurants. And I was working, um, sort of hippie cafe and stopping on my way home and picked up a loaf of bread at the, the co-op. And uh-huh. I got into the car with this loaf of bread and I'd never, I'd never had bread like I mean, I didn't, I didn't know what French bread was. I right. mean, we got loaves of bread and, and we baked bread at home, but they were whole wheat loaves and things sure. like that. And I just tore into this loaf of bread and it was, it was really transported. It was, I've never tasted anything like it. Never the crust, the, the, it is a lightly sourdough. Um, and I nearly mm. devoured the whole thing. It was crazy. Just it was right there. Just in the right car. there. I was like, what is this? And, yeah. um, and I then went, it was a local baker and I, I looked him up. Uh-huh. And I went up and visited him. He lived up in his name was Jules Rabin. And he was a retired, I want to say archaeology professor at Goddard College okay. up in Vermont. Uh-huh. And he started telling me that he, about learning to bake bread in France. Uh-huh. And then a second thing happened was I, um, there were, there was a guy who was growing these amazing tomatoes, um, biodynamic tomatoes in greenhouses in Vermont. And uh, for some reason I went to meet with him and he told me that he learned all about biodynamic farming in France. Uh huh. And so these two things kind of clicked in my brain. I said, well, I'm going to France. Yeah. And I didn't speak French. I didn't know. And I borrowed some money and I went to France. Sure. So you go to France and, and just sort of on a whim, mm-hmm. you, you don't have a plan. You're not, you're not enrolling in a French culinary school. You're just going to France because you want to be exposed to what other people have been exposed to in the world of food. Yeah. And I'd never been overseas. I'd never been, I had okay. to get a passport. Sure. Like, yeah. 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 And when is this? How old are you at this point? 22. 22. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And you, you start sort of taking jobs in France, not necessarily in food, but just sort of living in France and experiencing culture there. Is yeah. So right? I, I moved to Paris and I did some, I found a, a, a living arrangement for about a month, a, okay. a French woman who took in students and foreigners. And so, um, I, I had a place to stay for a month and then I went and signed up at the Alliance Francaise to learn how to speak French because okay. I thought that would be useful. If <laughs> right. I'm in France. And then a couple things happened. You know, it's so funny because this is long before cell phones and email and all that. But I had a few addresses of people. And one of them was a gentleman by the name of Robert Noah. And he had a, he had a tour company called Perry on Cuisine. And he, you, people would come to him and say, I want to, you know, uh, visit Paris through food. And he Uh would organize private tours for people. Sure. And he was the friend of a neighbor of a something or something. And so I went and knocked on his door and he told me about this cooking school over there called La Varenne. Mm -hmm. 
And he said that, that this school hires, um, uh, bilingual assistants. They, they have this crew of people who work there. You don't get paid, but you get culinary education in return for working. Sure. Um, and they're called stagiaire. Um, and he told me about it and I went and knocked on the door at that school. And that was where I, it was, it took me a while to get the job. I mean, non-paying job, but it was, right. but it, I was, ended up being there for almost a year and a half. Yeah, working at that school. Working at the school, getting my, I got a diploma from them because you, in exchange, you'd work five, six days a week and then you could, two nights a week, you'd stick around and the chefs would stay with you and, and give you the lessons that they were giving to the paying students. Yeah. Okay. So you left with a diploma yep. and to put a lot of time and energy into the school. At this point, do you realize that like you're going to be a person who works in food? It was almost, I mean, I want to say it wasn't instantaneous when I landed, landed in France, but there was something happened to me when I got there where I just thought this is, this is it. This is like, I, food, be, I didn't know that food could be a life. Yeah. I didn't know that people took food so seriously. Sure. I thought there might be something, you know, I mean, that not everybody thinks about food as much as I do, but over there <laughs> I found that people did. People do. And, yeah. Right. And that, and I also discovered fine dining. Sure. That, you know, that, that this is a really serious thing, gastronomy. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was almost instant. Yeah. And so you're, you're in France for a couple of years. You come back and you decide that you're going to start teaching. Is that right? Yeah. So interesting thing. So yes, I, I get over there and I realize that food can be a career and something I can be proud of and uh -huh. something that I can, um, devote my life to. But at the same time, by working in this school at La Varenne, the chefs that I was working with that I admired the most were amazing teachers. Sure. And this culinary education, the element, and I, I, I was really um, quite taken with that and inspired by that. And at the same time, being exposed to the super high-end cooking, I realized that I was not going to be a great chef. Uh -huh. I didn't have – I had too many other interests. I didn't have the drive to work those hours. Sure. I just I, – I looked at them as a whole different um, level. Sure. And – and then, and I was also taken with the education. So really almost from the get go, I got involved in culinary education. Yeah. Yeah. And that's sort of the path that you then carved for yourself. And you've been teaching cooking, teaching culinary skills for decades now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, and are one of the most respective, I think, respected culinary teachers in the country. When did you sort of first start to have the inkling that you would write cookbooks then? Cause your first book comes in, um, what year was your first book? 2004. It was okay. all about braising. Uh huh. That was my my first solo book before sure. that I co-authored a book called one potato, two potato uh -huh. that came out in 2001. Uh -huh. Um, and I had done some editing, consulting editing on some other books before then. Sure. But, um, the first solo book was really, Oh, there was a, there was a, a work for hire. I did a book for, uh, William Sonoma time life. Um, I did okay. a little book on new England. Okay. A few years before that. Yeah. Yeah. And you, did you also work on one of the joy of cooking? I did. Revisions. I did. Updates. Yes. Yeah. So you were sort of working on cookbooks for a while at the same time that you were teaching and, and holding cooking classes. And then you're sort of presented with the opportunity. Is that right? To write a first solo cookbook of your yeah, own. Absolutely. And how did you decide it would be on braising? Cause you're, you're also sort of, I love that the Boston globe has credited you with quote rescuing braising <laughs> as a technique. <laughs> which I love it. Yeah. I, I love that too. It, it was, um, exactly. It was an opportunity. It was an incredible opportunity. Um, a, a editor, Maria Guarnaschelli that mm -hmm. I had worked with on the, the 1997 revision of joy of cooking, um, sat me, we had lunch one day and she, she proposed that I should write a book on my own. Sure. And I really never thought I could write a book on my own. And so 
it was one of, it was a situation where we, she said, we're not getting up from lunch until we have a, an idea for your okay. book. And I didn't have, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't have a restaurant. I don't have a you know native cuisine. I don't have a, I'm not, you know, I'm not a native New Englander. You know, there was, I didn't feel like I had some thing to say, um, from a personal basis, but I was a te- as a teacher. I was like, if I find, if there's a technique out there that mm-hmm. I can wrap a book around, I got really excited about that idea. So sort of thinking about what are the techniques, you know, the, the basic, if you, if you need to know one or two techniques to, to get, find your way into cooking, um, and braising just seemed, and, and, you know, it was one of those things where I thought, well, there wasn't a single book on braising. There were books on stewing and braising was right. part of other books, but it was a term, a term that professional chefs all knew. Sure. Home cooks did it all the time, but they didn't necessarily call it braising. Right. Called it pot roasting or called it stewing. And so it was either a great idea or a really bad idea, you know, one or the other. But, um, I just thought this is, it's time for this book. Yeah. And it's funny. I was talking about this last night when I started the title, the word braising, people didn't know what like I'd say I'm working on a book on braising. They say raisins. What? Like it wasn't really? part of our, yeah. yeah. It, unless you were trained, it wasn't a, a common, really that common of a word. It's, yeah. it's changed quite a bit actually in the 16 years since I wrote yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. And, and clearly the book made quite a splash and you won the James Beard award and have been highly, it's just a highly praised book in general. What is it that you think is so appealing to people about braising, even if they might not be familiar with the term? Um, what is it that makes braising such a, a wonderful thing for home cooks? I think there are a few things. And one is that it is such a forgiving cooking technique. Mm-hmm. It is, I mean, sometimes when it first came out, people would just have wonderful success making the recipes. And right. I almost felt like I was cheating because it's just, it's such a forgiving technique. It's yeah. kind of hard to screw up a braise. Yeah. And so the way I organized the book, um, both the braising and the roasting books is that the first chapter, the introduction are the principles of braising. Mm-hmm. And once you grasp the principles of braising, you're off and running. Yeah. And it's a technique that once you get the few basics down, you can really make it your own and, and play around with it and, and, you know, improvise. And, um, so I think that's really skill building. Um, so it's a combination of the food turns out really well and it's skill building. Sure. It's also the kind of cooking where, you know, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So you, you put things together and you create this complexity of flavors and, you know, nuance and comforting. And it's very comforting food. Um, you can do it on a weekend and the leftovers are great. You know, it's just an right. easy, yeah. easy, easy thing. Um, and, it, and if you're, if, you know, there are vegetables and, um, Lots of vegetables in the book as well, but if you're a omnivore, a meat eater, it does amazing things with lesser cuts of meat. Sure. Which is also super appealing. Yeah. And there's the difference between a longer braise and a slower braise, and you're, you're sort of alluding now to meats that are longer braised that need more time to sort of break down and become tender. But I think one of the most interesting things to a, maybe a lot of home cooks about your braising book is the vegetable section. And there's a recipe of, for braised scallions that I love, um, that just like is not a thing that I would ever think to braise, right. but is really incredible. Right. And so that technique can really be applied for home cooks in a, a number of different ways and not just sort of a pot roast. Absolutely. And that was one of my biggest surprises and discoveries writing that book is the vegetable chapter ended up being the first chapter Uh and the biggest chapter really in terms of the number of recipes, because I knew going into it that I'd be doing pot roast and osobuco and um, lamb shanks and the classic braises. But because I develop recipes and write cookbooks at home and feed 
myself and my family the recipes that were that I'm developing right. because you got to do something with the food. <laughs> I crave vegetables, so I just kept making more braised vegetables, and and it was incredible. The yeah. like you said, scallions. I mean, I hadn't thought of braised scallions, and they're amazing and bright and light. And someone I was just talking to the other day who loves the braised celery. Uh huh. You know, it's just cool. It's yeah. Like you don't think to do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. We'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with Molly Stevens, author of All About Dinner. Every Tuesday on Salt and Spine, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Alison Roman and Samin Nosrat to today's guest, Molly Stevens, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring in-person interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, host incredible live shows, and so much more. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash saltandspine. Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Recently, I called up our friend, food writer Charlotte Druckmann, to discuss a piece she wrote for Epicurious titled The Cover Story, Why You Rarely See British Cookbook Covers on American Shelves. It's a question those of us who follow the cookbook industry closely have asked in recent years. And as Charlotte asks in the article, quote, British cookbook covers are innovative and distinctive. So why do U.S. publishers change them? There's something more almost conceptual about the British covers Mm -hmm. and something very literal about the American covers. Yeah. Charlotte started asking herself why this was after she began seriously buying cookbooks some 15 years ago. I just love cookbooks. And um, so, yeah, I would buy sometimes French cookbooks. And when I was in France, I, they would there would sometimes actually be British cookbooks. There would also be Australian cookbooks. And I always just noticed that they were just so beautifully designed in a way that our cookbooks weren't. And I don't know, and I would sometimes buy British cookbooks too. Just, you know, I would I would go just dig around a little bit. And in the last few years, thanks to social media too, because I follow so many British food writers and cookbook authors that I really like so much. And they will often post pictures of or tweet about new books coming down the pike that they're excited about. So then I would go look into those books and I would pre-order them because I would be like, wow, this book looks great. So I think that definitely over the past probably like five to 10 years, really, it started to happen much more and much more for me in terms of actively buying British cookbooks and then noting the difference. And then also during that same time, we started to see British cookbooks come to the United States Mm -hmm. where publishers were actually publishing them here or distributing them here. And so that was when you started to see not just the general difference between 
British cookbook design and American cookbook design, but you would actually see the same book, the British version, the American version. Right. And that was when it really drove it home for me. Cause it, cause it was that thought of like, why would you take something that already looked so nice? And had been designed in a way where you could see that, like, you know, it was clever or abstract and and really original and stood out. And then why would you go and change that unless you were going to do something even more original, you know, that stood out even more? And there is what Charlotte and many others say is perhaps the most perfect example of this. It's Yotamoto Lange's cookbook, Simple. In her article, Charlotte writes, quote, there is a cookbook cover some might consider perfect. It is British. Dadalangi example is really, for me, it's the most heartbreaking, and so it's the perfect example. It's beautiful, right? Because the British version is the beautiful graphic lemon. Yeah, the name of the book is Simple, and the people who designed it, it's this really great design firm called Pure Design, and... They've designed, I think they've started out doing Nigella Lawson's cookbooks. They do all of Adelengi cookbooks, and they also do like things like product package design. They don't just do cookbooks, but sure. I really love their work. And they did this really simple lemon. I mean, the, it's all, it's probably even more schematic than the lemon emoji, honestly. <laughs> yeah, like, right. <laughs> you sure. know it's a lemon, uh-huh. but it is the most basic two-dimensional, there's nothing that's been done to render it 3D in any way, lemon. And it's really recognizable because so many world cuisines use lemons, you know? And then it just has simple, in all caps, running across it. And it's a sans-serif font, which I also think is is sort of worth pointing out just because that's the simpler type of font, right? It's the less embellished kind of font. So it really is the visual manifestation of simplicity on a book that is called Simple. I just think that is so perfect, you know, and smart and memorable. And it's such a graphic image, too, that it, you, you won't forget it, you know. But of course, there's another side to the coin here. Yotam Odalangi joined us previously on Salt and Spine to discuss this exact book, Simple, which has an altogether different cover in the U.S. The American version is a collection of plates on a table surface. And what's odd to me is the food in the plates is like kind of disparate. There's like um, a dish of a yogurt swirl base with what looks like maybe roasted tomatoes in it. Uh Then there's some meatballs. And then there's like another bowl with some lettuce. Uh It's kind of, it doesn't, it does not say simple to me. It doesn't say simple because there are a lot of plates on there. There are multiple dishes. But it also doesn't, that doesn't necessarily translate directly to simple to me, even as as a meal per se, you know? Sure. And it's not, I don't want to say it's an ugly cover. It's not that. It's just so not memorable in the way that the lemon is. And I also don't necessarily think it says anything specific about the book in the way that the lemon does. Of course, Charlotte is sure to note that this isn't just the case with Yotamotolenghi's cookbooks. Dozens of British authors publish cookbooks that then appear with different covers in the United States. Diana Henry, who writes from London and has appeared on our show, tells Charlotte that she feels American cookbooks and their covers are, quote, quite old-fashioned. Her books, too, take on different covers in the States. Most of the people Charlotte talked to, at least most of those in the publishing industry, cite the difference in markets and what sells when discussing covers adapted for American audiences. But Charlotte wonders how much research there actually is to back that up. I think it's this idea that the market wants something, but we're not necessarily giving the market enough credit 
or testing these other things out on the market. Sure. But in the case of most of these books that we're talking about, they're for people who are already interested in books that are a little bit more sophisticated, who are interested in what's happening in the UK. You know, so that's, you're not necessarily looking at a mass audience. And in that sense, I almost think keeping the original Copa cover would help because it become, it becomes almost like a sign to people who love exactly that kind of book that here it is, you know? Once it starts blending in with all of the other American covers, it it stops distinguishing itself as something that's a little bit different than what we have here. And I think that's what it has going for it. Charlotte also notes there are constraints that are placed on cookbook designers in the U.S. with items like tofu, clams, and even pancakes on the avoid list. So I kind of get the thing with the pancakes, but I also kind of don't. I also personally don't think just because you see pancakes on a cover, you think the whole book is about breakfast. Right. But I, and I also think people really like pancakes, so I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I was more, I was actually more sort of like bewildered by the fact that like clams, we can't have clams on a cover because I guess seafood clams specifically don't do so well. I think shrimp is okay, but I guess that like no clams. That's just so specific to me that it seems really random. And I'd also like to know how many covers have actually had clams on them that allowed them to figure out for sure, statistically, right. that clams don't sell. This kind of like, right. <laughs> what, you know, did you, did you canvas 50 different covers with clams on them? Right. No, because I don't think there have been 50 covers with clams on them. Charlotte offers a final caveat on the topic. You know, I get so feisty about this that I end up making these like really assertive statements that sound dismissive of all American cookbook design in general. And I just want to say, like, I do think we've had some really great covers. If there weren't these rules to follow, if there wasn't this sort of like marketing wisdom, wherever it comes from, we might actually see different things in the States. One data point to Charlotte's hopeful tone, TenSpeed Press recently brought, quote, that iconic lemon to American audiences as part of a box set of Yota Modelanghi's cookbooks. That was food writer Charlotte Druckmann. She edited the Women on Food compilation, featuring more than 100 female voices from the food industry, published last fall. Her new cookbook, Kitchen Remix, 75 Recipes for Making the Most of Your Ingredients, is out next month. Salt and Spine is proud to have storytelling partners like Edible San Francisco. In the latest issue, read about how climate change is already impacting seafood in the Bay Area, plus take a look at upcoming cookbooks by local authors and some of the best sustainable seafood cookbooks. Subscribe now to ensure you don't miss compelling stories on how San Francisco eats at ediblesanfrancisco.com. And now back to our conversation with Molly Stevens, author of All About Dinner. So in your foreword of your latest book, All About Dinner, you you say that you're often asked, what do you cook at home? Um, and I know you consider yourself, you know, first and foremost, a home cook. Um, you said you have sometimes some apprehension around that question. What do you cook at home? Like a, a while ago, it used to maybe feel um, too personal or too intimate when you were asked that. Um, and you sort of had to break beyond that as you had a realization or revelation that students in your cooking classes wanted to know what you really cooked at home on like a Monday night, a, a grilled cheese or something and how you do it well. Did that sort of process for you sort of change how you think about 
your work as a, a cooking teacher and then influence this book in particular? Yes. I think that one of the things that I've come to realize after teaching for so long is that, I mean, the technique is really important. Um, but the most important thing to offer to students, I think, is inspiration and encouragement because mm-hmm. so I, I've heard so many people say they don't know how to cook or they're not good cooks. And in many cases, they do know how to cook and they are good cooks, but they, there's this fear around cooking. There's yeah. this, this trepidation. There's a sense that it should be something more than what we're already doing to feed ourselves. And so. I was sort of stepped back and reflected on what I do on a regular basis. And yes, sometimes I pull out the stops and I, you know, really go for it. But on a regular, you know, Monday or Tuesday night, it really might just be, you know, what my skillet pasta is one of my favorite things Uh in this book. And it's, you know, I just saute some vegetables and by the time they're sauteed, the pasta water's boiling and the pasta goes in and that's dinner. And it's, right. it's good because I made it from scratch with good ingredients. Right. And that's cooking. Yeah. I think. And you think that's maybe a misconception that some people think that's maybe not cooking because it's not as, it's not advanced or following a recipe per se. I, no, I think people think that's cooking, uh-huh. but it's, but that it's, that um, too often we, we go to recipes that are beyond our ability maybe, uh-huh. or we put too much to our expectations are too high. Um, sure. and, and so I just wanted to, I find one of like the, when I write, I really try to, as I, I mentioned before, encouragement that it's going to be okay. Yeah. You know, it's not, you're not going to, people are like, oh, I ruined it. It's like, well, unless you burn the crap out of it, you probably haven't ruined it. Right. You know, I mean, there are a few things you can do to ruin things, but you, <laughs> you could often bring things back, you know? Yeah. And so it's, it, it's the process of being in touch with your ingredients and paying attention as you go. And that's where cooking really happens. Yeah. And so not focusing on the end, but focusing on what's going into the dish and how you're handling it and talking about it as you go along. So, so it's, the process of cooking and not, you know, this, we have to have this amazing outcome. Sure. It's just dinner. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. It's just dinner. It's just dinner. (laughs) So you've obviously been teaching home cooks for many years and we're talking a little bit about people who maybe think they're not good cooks or that they don't know how to cook. Are there particular issues that you see home cooks facing today or areas that home cooks really feel like they need a little bit more of that encouragement or some more technique building? You know, I think, I think we, and this is something I struggle to figure out how to teach, but I think shopping is almost harder than te- than cooking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one, it takes time. Right. Um, you have to figure out, you know, just make so many decisions at the market. Yeah. So that's something that I'm, I, I don't, I mean, I do in the book, I include a lot of shopping notes, um, and try to help with some just basic guidelines for what to look for. But I do, I, I do think that's something that, um, that I want to keep thinking about how to help people make better choices at the market. And, and, you know, it takes time too. I mean, sometimes the shopping takes longer than the cooking right. kind of thing. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think that that one is definitely a challenge. And I also yeah. think people struggle with no, like figuring out what to cook. Oh, sure. You know? Um, and then, and then it's funny. I, I talked to so many people and some people, they say they don't, they don't know how to cook. They don't like to, or the, what am I saying? They don't think they're good cooks, but then they don't like to cook. I'm like, well, then don't cook. Right. I mean, if you don't like to cook, I mean, I would love it if everybody loved to cook. Right. But, but I, you know, it's hard to, to, to balance. If you don't like it, it's, it's hard to find your way in. Yeah. 
That's, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. You offer in the, the latest book, 15 Habits of Highly Effective Cooks. Um, and you're sort of alluding to this now, but I like that some of them are very practical, like reading the recipe twice before you start mm-hmm. or salting things early and often, like very practical tips. But a number of them are sort of more philosophical. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're sort of alluding to this now, but like cooking for fun and, um, being present. How do you sort of see people relating to those things? And you're, you're sort of also noting that a, a struggling point for some people can be what to make. Mm-hmm. How do you see sort of people who might enjoy cooking, but struggle with knowing how to just show up in their own home kitchen on a Tuesday night and put a nice meal on the table? What, what do you sort of coach them? Um, how do you sort of coach them through that? So, um, I think the first one, the first habit is cook what you like to eat. Yeah. So it sounds so obvious, right? Obviously don't cook something you don't like, but it's identifying a few things, picking one or two dishes that you really enjoy and committing to learning how to make them because there's something, I mean, I don't cook from recipes on a regular basis. Sure. Most good cooks I know don't, Right. you know, um, occasionally do, but being in a kitchen with a a printed page or a, a, a screen and trying to read that and then cook. It, it, that's really hard. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. those are two stuff, stuff. Your brain is working two different ways and you have to go back and the onion is cooking and this is, you have to go read about what happens next. So learning to cook, I often think is freeing ourselves from the reliance on a recipe. Uh-huh. It's sort of funny because I write recipes for a living, right? <laughs> right? But what I'm trying to do is to get people to not need the recipes. Right. Yeah. So, and every recipe and, um, it's the way I write my recipes. I try to break them down into techniques, but every recipe is really just a series of steps. And often those steps are, are, are transferable and you'll find them repeated in different recipes and the different ways they're organized will produce different outcomes. And as a cook, if you can start to recognize a step as a take technique, you can then go, Oh, I did the same thing when I was making that other soup the other day. And you start to recognize it. And then you're not reading the page just automatically, you know, um, on, on autopilot, uh-huh. you're going, Oh, right. I'm supposed to be sauteing the onions because I'm developing a flavor base that's going to become the flavor base for the soup. And, um, so you, you, so the idea is to learn to, what I think is if you learn to make a few things, Without the recipe, you can then, it's a very empowering feeling to cook without a recipe. Yeah. So that is one of the. Picking a few dishes and making them time and again until they become second nature. Yeah. And then you can start improvising on Mm -hmm. them and, and, um, you know, making them your own. Yeah. Absolutely. So we talked a little bit ago about the photos in the beginning of this book of your mom's recipes and your grandma's recipes. Um, were cookbooks sort of a part of your life when you were growing up or were they mostly cooking you and your family mostly cooking from? Family recipes that were captured in this way. Um, mostly family recipes that were captured in this way. Uh-huh. It's, um, I'm trying to think. I mean, there were a few cookbooks. My older brother got into like natural food at one point and my mom joined a co-op. And, okay. And, uh, so this sort of natural food ethos took over a little bit or I shouldn't say took over, but kind of, you know, seeped into our cooking. And so there were, there were a few early nat, you know, health food books around, but, but no cookbooks weren't a part of it. And I, I, one of my first books that I did pick up, um, after college mm-hmm. was a Richard only book. Sure. And that, that, that was life changing. Just before you went to France. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was part of the seed uh, for. Yeah another seed of something's happening in France that I need to know about. Right. Right. 
Are there books or authors, cookbooks or authors that have been particularly influential to you over the course of your career? Richard yes. Olney. Richard Olney. Um, James Beard. Uh huh. Absolutely. Uh, Judy Rogers. Yeah. That Zuni, Zuni Cafe, Zuni Cafe mm-hmm. book just, just stopped me in my tracks. Yeah. Um, um, there, I mean, there's, there are so many, I was thinking the Suzanne Goyne book, um, uh-huh. the Sunday the, suppers the, book. Yes. Yep. Um, yeah, there's, there's so many. Yeah. I have a, I have a cookbook wall that's <laughs> bigger than this one. Yes. <laughs> um, what do you look for in a good cookbook as a person who writes recipes and writes cookbooks of your own? What do you want to see? Um, clearly, obviously inspiration, um, clear direction. What do you um, mean by clear direction? I mean, even I, if I'm reading a recipe and it just doesn't tell you. Oh, sure. Literal direction. Literal direction. Yeah. Okay. yeah literal, yeah. like, like. Caref- within the recipe. Within yeah. the recipe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Clear direction. I want to know. Um, I mean, it's not that I, yeah, I, I, I like them to be clearly written. Yeah. Um, and to tell me where I'm going. Um, yeah. and more than a series of steps. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, but, and good writing. Mm-hmm. I love good writing. Yeah. How would you finish this sentence? To me, to me, cookbooks are. To me, cookbooks are inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I just love cookbooks. What I, um, they're more, to me, cookbooks are more than just a collection of recipes. Yeah. Well, we always end with a little game. Okay. I love that answer. We always end with a little game. So I thought we would, um, use our, our signature cards here that we always use. So they're, they're, um, Clearly labeled for you, the secret ingredient stack is um, a mixed bag of different ingredients that don't sort of fit within the others. But I thought we would um, borrow your first two books for the theme of our game. So your first book, all about braising, and then you followed that with all about roasting. So I thought we'd play a game called Do We Braise It or Do We Roast It? Okay. So we're going to let you draw from any of the decks. We'll do a couple rounds. Um Tell us what, what ingredient we have to work with and how you might either braise it or roast it. And feel free to imagine that you sort of have a a traditional pantry at hand and you can sort of rely on sort of staple ingredients as well. All right. Well, I'm going to ease into it with protein. Okay. Sounds good. This might be an easier one. All right. Oh, a chickpea. A chickpea. All right. Okay. Do we braise it or do we roast it? Do we braise it or do we roast it? Well, it depends on how we want the chickpeas, but Uh I would probably um, be more apt to braise the chickpea because I would want to cook it slowly with some aromatic ingredients until it was tender and full of flavor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to, I'm going to braise my chickpeas. Okay. That okay. sounds delicious. All right. Well, we'll go vegetable beets, beets. Okay. I'm going to roast the beets. Yeah. I'm going to roast like the beets. And what I'm going to do though, um, is I'm reading the, the little subtext. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a proper, uh, a uh, roasted beet. I'm not going to wrap it in foil and steam it. Okay. The way we often do when we get, which is a wonderful way to, to do it. And right. They, they get very, very uh, tender and mm-hmm. soft. But I'm going to peel it and then chop it into chunks the way you would do a roast potato. Sure. And roast it that way. So it really does sort of concentrate the sweetness and get a little crisp bits on the end. Yeah. And then I'm going to take the greens and I'm going to braise the greens. Okay. So we're going to have braised beet greens with roasted beets scattered over the top. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Pulling yep. both of them together. Yeah. Yep. Delicious. And you, you would, um, braise the beet and just, just an olive oil. Um, so the, the roast, or you're roasting, the the roasting yes. them, they're going to be, uh, tossed in probably an olive oil because that's the most standard, um, 
min- yeah, in olive oil. In olive oil. Um, I might put a little, um, I don't know, maybe crushed cumin on them. Okay. A little salt and pepper yeah. and cumin just mm-hmm. to give them a little something. And then the beet greens, I'm going to braise, um, with a little bit of olive oil, garlic, and, uh, maybe a little red pepper flake. Mm, delicious. Yeah. Great. Yeah. All right. Should we put you to the real test and see if you can do a secret ingredient? All right. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Create your own secret. Oh, okay. Ingredient. We'll skip no, that. We're one. not going to do that. What <laughs> Sorry, okay. I should have shuffled. Smoked oh, salmon. No. Oh, smoked salmon. All right. Okay, so smoked salmon is already you know ready to go. Right. So I'm not going to roast. I don't want roasted smoked salmon. So what I think I might do with the smoked salmon is I might braise some. What I braise, I would. Braised. Let's stick with vegetables. I might do some braised potatoes. Okay. Like some fingerlings potatoes and braise them just with a little bit of, um, I think I'm sticking with, with a, maybe I'll do a little butter okay. and a little bit of just either water or vegetable stock and braise them and with some, and with fresh dill. Uh huh. And then when they're finished braising, I'm going to let them cool and serve them, cut them in half and top them with a little smoked salmon. Delicious. Like a little hors d'oeuvre. Right. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. That's yeah. great. Oh, well, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for joining us, Molly. Thank you for having me. We're joined now by Paula Forbes, editor of the cookbook newsletter Stained Page News, to highlight some of the new releases she's watching in March. Hi, Paula. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Great. Thank you so much for joining us again on Salt and Spine to preview some upcoming cookbook releases for us. And I think we're going to talk about the month of March today, right? So in March, we have two big French cookbooks coming. Okay. Um, the first of which is uh, Melissa Clark's Dinner in French. And I know everyone is a big fan of her dinner cookbooks. So this one uh, takes that model and just focuses it all on French cooking, making it accessible for home cooks. I think that'll be a really fun thing, especially heading into the summer with all the fresh produce and everything. And then we have to accompany it, perhaps, David Leibovitz's Drinking French. So we're talking cocktails, aperitifs, cafe stuff. Um, I think those two books will go really nicely with each other. Yeah, I'm really excited for both of those, Um, particularly Melissa's, I think, because French food can sometimes, for new cooks, maybe have a reputation of being inaccessible. Um, Mm -hmm. And, of course, folks who know Melissa Clark know that her recipes are quite the opposite and are very accessible. So I'm, I'm really excited for that one. Yeah, same. I think it'll be great. I think it'll be a really easy way for people to get into French cooking. Yeah, that's really exciting. And then let's see, moving forward, spring, of course, means grilling. So um, we have, or getting into the grilling season anyway, I should say. Sure. Uh, We have um, Eric Werner, who is a chef at Heartwood in Tulum in Mexico, um, is coming out with his second cookbook. Uh, His first cookbook was very restaurant-y, chef-y, but this one is more aimed at home cooks called The Outdoor Kitchen. And I think it's maybe... A little bit more creative, fun ideas for grilling than people are used to seeing in your traditional summer grilling cookbooks. That's exciting. I think people can also sort of feel stuck with the same sort of grilling recipes, right? You sort of get in a habit. So breaking that Mm -hmm. is really exciting. 
Yeah. What else do we have? I wanted to talk about Eat Something, which is a book from Evan Bloom in San Francisco, uh, who has Wise Sons. That's a cafe deli. And he has a cookbook coming out that's all about Jewish cooking. So for Jewish holidays and just Jewish food traditions, I think that's really fun for spring. We also have Going Farther Field, coming out of London, Chef Fergus Henderson. I know everyone is a big fan of his previous book, um, has a book coming out, The Book of St. John, that outlines never-released recipes from that restaurant. So Uh that's something to look forward to. And then another one I'm looking forward to quite a bit is Kazana, which is... A book from Saliha Mahmoud Ahmed, who was on MasterChef, but she looks at a a cuisine that a lot of people might not be super familiar with, which is Indo-Persian food. So I think that if you're looking to expand your horizons this spring, that that might be a good cookbook for you to look into. Sounds amazing. That's really exciting. It feels like March is a good month from French dinner parties, perhaps with nice French cocktails to exploring into Persian cooking to figuring out what you want to grill this year. Yep. I think there's a little bit of something for everybody. Great. Well, thanks so much, Paula. Yeah, thank you. That's Paula Forbes, editor of Stained Page News. You can subscribe for her weekly cookbook news in your inbox at stainedpagenews.substack.com. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on saltandspine.com. There you'll find two recipes from Molly Stevens' All About Dinner, the charred and onion tart with two cheeses, and of course the white bean gratin with tomatoes and sausage. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Madeline Forbes. Salt and Spine's kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Charlotte Druckmann and Paula Forbes, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.